Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, editor at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Bill is in Rome right now as a resident scholar at the American Academy in Rome. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, April 8th. What a week! Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson made history when the Senate confirmed her to the Supreme Court. She's the first black woman on the high court. The Senate and House passed legislation further isolating Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, for invading Ukraine, complementing several White House actions to do the same. Meanwhile, the midterm campaign season is in full swing. The cost of living, gas prices, wages, housing will all be big topics. What are President Joe Biden and congressional Democrats doing to counter GOP arguments that the majority's policies are hiking costs? Two more Trump aides were held in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the select panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And pretty much everybody in Washington got covid here to discuss these topics and more are Sarah Wire, National Security and Justice Department reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Sarah. Morning. Thanks for having me. Elena Treen, congressional reporter for Axios. Good morning, Elena. Good morning. Happy to be here. And Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. Hello, Alex. Jason, always a pleasure to talk to you. On this vote, the A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. And there it was. Uh, Kamala Harris, the first uh, African-American woman to be vice president of the United States, was presiding over the Senate confirmation vote of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, hard to hard to use any more superlatives than have been used, uh, Sarah. But I mean, this is just a, a big moment in in history for us. Well, and to have the first black female vice president. Uh, preside over it, I think, was a, a big moment as well. Uh, the, the photos of uh, President Biden hugging Judge Jackson, I think, really stood out to a lot of people as well. It's just kind of that moment in history. And and in the chamber itself, I mean, the you know the the, the there had been a lot of criticism from Republicans um, in the in the weeks leading up in the wake of the hearings and so forth, but. Uh, even that was sort of muted. There wasn't a ton of of stuff on the floor going after her by Republicans. They had a press conference, uh, you know, in 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 the Capitol, but not the the vitriol was sort of behind them. Even if it's going to continue uh, showing up, maybe in campaigns or on Fox News and and so forth. But like this was really this seemed to be Jackson's moment, and people like Cory Booker, you know, really sort of in their speeches, sort of rose to the occasion to to frame this in historic terms. The biggest complaint we heard afterwards from Republicans was, oh, you know, Biden could have picked a more moderate judge and gotten more Republican support. But, you know, I 
judge has just as much power on the Supreme Court, whether they have 53 votes in the Senate or 63 votes in the Senate. So I don't think anyone was too surprised that Biden went with who he wanted. And Alex, at the White House, I mean, we're, we're going to see a, a, a sort of a big event uh, there uh, today on Friday. The president's going to host Judge Jackson and as well as the other members of the Supreme Court, her family, several members of Congress. I mean, this is uh, they're, they're sort of pulling out all the stops and they could kind of use uh, a win uh, for, you know, it's been a, a sort of series of grim news events, whether it's the war in Ukraine or inflation. Uh, and this is this qualifies as sort of a, a big win for this White House. Yeah, I mean, Jason, you said it. I mean, I think this is a White House that you know, seemingly since last fall has almost lurched from unexpected crisis to unexpected crisis. Right. I mean, how the sort of deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, the surge in inflation that a lot of economists didn't predict, the emergence of not one but two new variants, and of course, war in Europe. Um, and I think it's, you know, all of those events have kind of combined to create this sense that, um, you know, Biden hasn't restored this sense of normalcy to the country that he promised during the 2020 campaign. But why this is such a big deal and why you see the White House making such a big deal about this. Beyond the obvious, yes, you know, appointing a Supreme Court justice is always a big event for a president. Um, You know, this is, I think, Joe Biden reasserting control over his presidency and delivering on something that was always expected of him. Uh, He just hasn't been able to do that Um, so far, you know, all that often during his during his presidency. Um, And I think the White House sees this as an opportunity to to try to, you know, maybe reclaim control of the narrative a little bit and and hopes. And I, I know we've We've spoken with some allies recently who hope maybe this represents something of a turning point uh, for for this White House moving forward. And Elena, I mean, this was a this was a bipartisan vote. Three Republicans supported uh, her: Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. Yes, I mean, some of the criticism that we saw of of Judge Jackson during her hearings and and afterwards echoed by you know the likes of Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Marsha Blackburn. Uh, just seemed almost kind of uh, beyond the beyond the pal. Uh, we've got a clip of Tom Cotton here. Let's let's play that, and we'll get we'll get to you. You know, the last Judge Jackson left the Supreme Court to go to Nuremberg and prosecute the case against the Nazis. This Judge Jackson might have gone there to defend them. I mean, is this the kind of stuff that you know? I mean, tends to rile up Democratic voters, particularly its most loyal block, uh, black voters and black women voters when they hear things like this from Republicans, Elena? No, it's not. And and the thing that just from my conversations with lawmakers on, on both sides of the aisle, it's disheartening that this is what Supreme Court hearings have become. I mean, if you look at the last two, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, um, very con- adversarial hearings, and really, again, not always about, particularly with with Judge Jackson, pr- not about the hearing itself and about their viability on the court, but a lot of it becomes theater and tryouts, political tryouts for a lot of people who have broader political aspirations. And so um, it's actually something that I know is being discussed more broadly among lawmakers about how do we change this? Is this the new normal? Do we just expect that every time a vacancy opens up, it's going to be completely partisan? It's going to be um, 
a circus in the, in the hearings and, and not as much about um, really looking at the qualifications of each justice or each potential justice. And it's something that uh, I'm very curious to see whether lawmakers try to change. I know there's some discussions now about um, potentially trying to make the process a little bit more enjoyable isn't the right word, make the process a little bit more amiable, I guess, um, for everyone. And this also comes off of one thing I want to bring up in this conversation is my colleague, Jonathan Swan, yesterday interviewed. I'm, I'm uh, glad Senate you came to this. Leader. That was my next, my next question about McConnell's response to some of Jonathan's right. questions. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and I think it speaks a lot to the conversation we're having now because um, he asked Mitch McConnell, if you know, will you say right now, will you um, commit to holding hearings for uh, President Biden's potential nominee if a Supreme Court vacancy opens up in 2023? And that's not a election year. That does not fall under Mitch McConnell's uh, quote-unquote Merrick Garland rule. But McConnell would not commit to that. And it's something that um, when I was walking through the halls and speaking with senators yesterday, they were you know, very disappointed to hear that, obviously, and, and thinking about how can we change this process. It just shows, it speaks to this whole point of how polarized and partisan uh, this this Supreme Court process has become. Yeah. I had to laugh a little bit when Senator Chuck Grassley said early on in the process, you know, there's no reason to rush this, that, you know, why not wait until next fall and hold these hearings? <laughs> and it was just kind of like, well, there's been a good example of why Democrats want to, to move as quickly as possible, because if they lose the Senate, you know, they might not be able to confirm her. It was just made me chuckle a bit. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, that, that um, it, it seemed that the, the, the Democrats, while celebrating a win, also knew that they have to get this done right now because nothing is guaranteed you know past the elections they're you know their majority uh in in both chambers is is really sort of in perilous condition and they're i mean they have seen mitch mcconnell you know uh with what he did to merrick garland's uh nomination when anton antonin scalia died they they saw what he did the last time that, that they were potentially in this situation and there is there is no guarantee um and i would i would I would posit that that is a good way to plan uh, if if you're if you have a, an opportunity like this. Jason, I would just I would just jump in real quick. I mean, there's no guarantee that they could have the votes this summer, right? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, um, but you know, when you have the, the barest of majority, um, you know, there was there was no time to waste for Democrats, even a few months, if if any you know if anything should happen to anyone in their majority and should prevent them uh, from being able to serve. Um, you know, Republicans would gain the majority. So I think the timeline was even tighter than the, than yeah. the election. And it's why they, they move so fast. Yeah, they certainly did. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about something that w- actually was bipartisan or has been bipartisan, at least so far. Uh, and, and that's the way that uh, the, the White House and Congress have approached uh, Russia and isolating Russia in the uh, in the wake of its invasion of of Ukraine. Um, you know, the, uh, Elena. You know, yesterday we saw something that we haven't seen a lot, uh, which is uh, the Senate passed two bills, a hundred to nothing. <laughs> Everybody wanted to go on record as supporting these bills uh, because you can usually just voice vote these things if there's that much uh, of, um, 
support for them. But one would, you know, basically ban all Russian oil imports uh, from the United States. And another would yank its uh, permanent nor- uh, normal trade relations, the U.S.'s, you know, trade relations with, with Russia and Belarus. Uh, and then it went over to the House and it passed, you know, it was, it was as close to a layup uh, in, in the in the uh, House as possible. You know, there were a couple, couple two, three people uh, opposed, but uh, and then it's sent to the president's desk. And this this is something that has, you know, been sort of remarkable. There are people who um, in, in the Republican Party who are criticizing the response that it's not aggressive enough sometimes, but like to get these sort of margins, to get that sort of support uh, for anything is pretty rare, right? What's going on up there? Oh, it's very rare uh, to see. It was definitely watching it to have a hundred to zero, an entirely unanimous Senate um, vote on this after you know, in a fifty-fifty Senate is is very rare. But I will say, it's not because there was this just very um, all of a sudden a total unity within the Senate. It came after a lot of partisan squabbling over the PNTR issue and the oil bans and and some of the packages and addressing how to push back against Russia even further. Um, the, the reason it was 100 to zero um, on those two votes in the Senate was only after uh, Chuck Schumer and, and those on the right came to an agreement late Wednesday night um, on these two packages. And we had seen the entire week before um, the process get stymied by first Rand Paul, who was holding it up over um, objections regarding the Magnitsky Act, which I won't get into because um, it gets very wonky. But um, there was a lot of infighting on, on this issue. And then finally, I mean, I actually think a lot of people were surprised that they were able to have this vote prior to their two week recess, just because of the, the infighting, but they were able to come to an agreement on Wednesday night and get these bill passed. And the, and the thing I also just want to point out with that is it is remarkable to see some of that infighting, even when it comes to the kind of issue and how to, how to push back against Russia, which is agreed on by almost every single lawmaker um, on, on Capitol Hill about how that we need to do more to help Ukraine and help, um, you know, put more pressure on Russia in any way that the U.S. can. So to still see some of that partisan infighting, I know, is um, sometimes difficult for a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill. But it was definitely, I think, um, everyone was happy to see that 100 to zero vote um, once they did come to that agreement. And and Sarah, um, I mean, you you have been you know covering you know some of the sort of extreme fringes of of uh, politics in in your capacity at, at LA Times. Um, I mean, a lot of that is is centered around January sixth, which we'll talk to about a little bit later in the podcast. But there, it is almost that there is a. Um, it, in the in the Republican sort of uh, you know uh, bullhorns out there on Fox News and so forth, there's almost like this pro-Putin wing that of of the Republican Party that like with in the form of like Tucker Carlson and so forth that seems to be really at odds with where the public is and even where Congress is. What I mean, what is what is Tucker Carlson and this like this group of people? What are, what could they possibly be thinking? Yeah, it, it might be a, a nod back to you know kind of the love of authoritarianism we saw under the Trump administration and the strongman ideal. Um, you know, they might be hearing a lot of the the propaganda that we know, we know is coming out of Russia. I mean, you talk to folks who have family in Russia and they're hearing a completely different storyline than the rest of the world is. 
Um, I'm not sure what benefit they get out of it beyond, you know, maybe sowing doubt and uh, among Americans about whether we should be involved or not. But I don't see how that benefits someone like Tucker Carlson. You know, Alex, you're you're in the White House briefing room a lot. Um, you know, is is this does this do you see a lot of eye rolling when when these sort of things come out? Uh, you know, or I mean, is it is it all all in the game uh, as uh, as Omar would say on the wire? Or or people do, do people really believe this crap? <laughs> it's, I mean, Jason, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I I think you know to the extent that the White House can, they essentially don't comment on anything that Tucker Carlson says. Right. And they're pretty selective about um, what they would respond to, even from from former President Trump. Now, I think you've seen them respond to him a little bit more lately. Um, but by and large, like a lot of White Houses, what they want to focus on is what they're doing. You know, and, and in this case, the aid that they're providing Ukraine in terms of, of military and financial support, um, but also what they're doing to try to rally NATO and to try to bring NATO together. And you've seen President Biden say this over and over and over again, you know, that that Vladimir Putin thought he could divide NATO and, and show how weak the West was. And in fact, he's he's done the opposite. And I think that's really been the the message of the day from from the White House, um, as I think they both, you know, try to lead the response and also convince the American people uh, that, that President Biden is, is doing a, a good job of this. I would just say, you know, Jason, the, the one caveat I would add to that is, I think it's more of an open question how much we see the White House engage on that as we move closer and closer to the midterm elections, much less the 2024 presidential election. Because as you know, for a party that's in power, that controls the White House and Congress, the name of the game is always trying to set up a contrast with your opponent. So it's not just a referendum on you. In this case, if it's just a pure referendum on Democrats, I think even a lot of Democrats would acknowledge um, that they're going to lose in the midterms. And they might anyway. But you know, their objective over the next seven months is to say it's not a referendum on us. It's a choice between us and potentially, depending if they decide to indulge in this attack, a party that seems to be flirting with Vladimir Putin um, at, at this point. So that's that's my question. That's the speculation, not based on any reporting necessarily. But I do wonder if they're going to lean more into that as the, the closer and closer we move uh, to the midterm election. That's a good transition to talking about the midterm. But first, we're going to take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, editor at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Alex Rorty, Elena Treen, and Sarah Wire. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union of North America. Under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the iron workers say the sky's the limit, and boy, do they mean it. You look at most of America's iconic structures, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the Arch in St. Louis, the New World Trade Center, all built by iron workers. Check out their website, ironworkers.org, to find out more about their great work. We salute the iron workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, editor at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Sarah Wire from the LA Times, Elena Treen from Axios, and Alex Rorty from McClatchy Newspapers. Uh, Alex, you were beginning to, to discuss the midterm uh, midterm election, and it, it you know sort of nicely framed that as when the party in power, uh, when it's a referenda on them, uh, it, it tends to, to not go well for them. But if they get to run against somebody, uh, then then that improves the odds. And uh, we just happen to have a, a, a little uh, clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the Republican congresswoman from Georgia who was just endorsed by the former president, Donald Trump. Uh, and and I, I would guess that at least some of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, comments and, and feelings about things might show up on the campaign trail. Let's listen to that uh, clip and then uh, we'll talk. We'll, we'll we'll throw to Sarah about her reaction. The Democrats are the party of pedophiles. The Democrats are the party of princess predators from Disney. Disney wants to completely take your children and they want to indoctrinate them into sexual immoral filth. Murkowski, Collins, and Mitt Romney are pro-pedophile by approving her uh, judgments and her her pro-pedophile stances uh, from the bench. Sarah, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and just a, just a few of the recent comments that she has uh, provided uh, opposition researchers around the world uh, is is Sarah is is Marjorie Taylor Greene a, a, a gift to Democrats or or could she could she actually motivate Republicans as we get gear up for the midterms? Well, it depends on who in the Republican Party she's trying to motivate. I mean, it, it her rhetoric sounds very similar to what we're still hearing from QAnon forums. That you know anyone who opposes uh, them are pedophiles. Um, you know there's there's going to be a certain line in the sand that Democrats can draw about that. Of that's all Republicans can say, and you know everyone's a pedophile. Everyone's a pedophile. Um, you know Jamie Raskin had a really interesting turn on that the other day. He said, you know, 
this is all Republicans can talk anymore about anymore. But, you know, the Democratic Party is now the party of progressives because they like progress. They're the party of liberals because they like liberty. And they're the party of conservatives because they want to conserve your air and your water and your freedom. Yeah, um, we, we actually have a, uh, a clip, uh, a short clip of, uh, of Jamie Raskin res- responding to, to, to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let me, let me play that real quick, just since you, since you brought it up. That's fortuitous. The, the general lady, I think, said something about the Russian hoax or uh, Russian collusion. Now, I accept the heckling, Mr. Speaker, that that's all right. Because if she wants to continue to stand with Vladimir Putin and his brutal, bloody invasion against the people of Ukraine, she is free to do so. And we understand there is a strong Trump-Putin axis in the general lady's party. Um, you know, a little, I mean, he, he gets more into, as, as you said, the, you know, we're, this is who we are. And my, my question, uh, you know, there, you know, since you brought it up, uh, Sarah is, is like, that's the kind of thing we hear on the floor from people like Raskin that doesn't seem to be coming from, uh, that, that sort of passion doesn't seem to be coming from the president, from Nancy Pelosi, from Chuck Schumer. Uh, it all seems to be about progress. Like, well, we're really happy to be on this motion to proceed now kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it's like, is, is, are people going to be gearing up and going more the Raskin route? Or are we going to be hearing more about like floor procedure from, from Democratic senators? I mean, in some ways, it seems like leadership and the president are a bit on their back foot when it comes to that. They, they don't, the, you know, the American Recovery Act that they passed a year ago isn't inspiring voters to turn out for Democrats. And they are kind of grasping at what to do. And, you know, you do see some of these younger rank and file members who are coming up with, you know, interesting lines, I guess, you know, interesting pushback to, to Republicans and making the argument about them. Uh, we'll see what sticks. I think we're early enough in the midterms that they're still kind of testing lines. Um, but well, like I said, we'll see what sticks. And, and Elena, I mean, you know, some of these, you know, the, 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 the laws, you know, the, the, the spending packages that Congress has passed, whether, you know, it's the recovery act, as Sarah mentioned, or the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, I mean, like these, these are the sort of things that are, are concrete accomplishments. Is that going to be able to break through, you know, some of the arguments when, you know, say Steve Scalise just says like, um, you know, the house majority whip or the house minority whip, a uh, Republican from Louisiana just says, uh, this is Joe Biden's fault that gas is expensive. Like what, which, which are, are Democrats able to counter, you know, some of the, that sort of like just raw messaging with like, no, look at what we've done. What, what do you think is going to break through here as we, as we, as we get into the midterms? I will say it's going to be very hard um, for Democrats to claw back some of the losses that they've seen. Um, I, I mean, just looking at a recent poll, I did a story um, about a week ago, I think now regarding the NBC news poll that came out that showed Biden's popularity down to 40, I think it was 44%. Um, and 33% on the economy. And um, I spoke with many Democrats in the House about this, and they were very worried. And they said that it's going to be very hard to try to claw back some of those losses um, because it's also, I mean, as much as what they're doing, it's a lot of the external factors as well. I mean, Americans are very, very worried about gas prices, about inflation, about the economy. Those are the things that are. Um, really driving what we're seeing in the polls and potentially, you know, the energizing factors that will carry 
um, both sides into the midterms. And so it's going to be hard. Um, there's a lot of things that need to happen in order for Democrats, I think, to feel very, more confident going into November. Um, obviously, having uh, legislation to address gas prices, which many vulnerable Democrats are, are really pushing for, um, having a, you know, potentially seeing what happens with Russia and Ukraine. And, and if that gets better in the next few months, that will be um, wonderful, I think, for Democrats, just because it'll help alleviate some of the other pains that we're seeing domestically. Um, and then as for messaging, I mean, listen, Democrats or any party, I shouldn't say Democrats, but any party that is in power um, always has trouble messaging on the things and the successes that they've had. The American Rescue Plan was a long time ago now. It's going to be hard to to really use that um, to boost them um, in, in a big way ahead of November. Um, and, and they will have more packages coming out. Um, I think they're going to have another COVID relief package by the time the midterms come. Um, I know they're working on that now, but it'll definitely be a few weeks, um, if not more, to see that come to, to come to fruition. But it, it's going to be difficult. And uh, I mean, adding on top of that, knowing that historically the party in power um, struggles more in the midterms, Democrats do have a lot going against them. I'm not saying that it's going to be, you know, they, they can't um, hold on to their majorities. It's just very hard in the, in the situations at present. And Alex, I mean, one thing that, you know, I've, I've was wondering about, you know, as we saw this sort of like mini outbreak, you know, that stemmed from the gridiron dinner where, you know, Merrick Garland got COVID and Gina Raimondo, the commerce secretary got COVID and Anthony Fauci was there, I guess he's, he's okay. But, you know, like there was this, all of a sudden, you know, COVID sort of sneaking back into the headlines. Uh, How worried is the white house that this, this could be, something that they lose control over, you know, if, if, if uh, infection rates, you know, sort of tick up like they have in Europe uh, because of the latest subvariants. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is, there's a little bit of a feeling of deja vu for the white house when it comes to the pandemic. Right. Because, you know, don't forget, this is a white house that on July 4th, you know, kind of declared independence uh, from COVID. The thought at the time was that we had a vaccine, we were moving forward and then Delta arrived. Right. Um, And and Delta, the White House openly acknowledged at the time, that's what they blamed President Biden's uh, sinking approval ratings on. Right. That it was the emergence of the Delta variant, um, how sick and how many people were getting infected, how many people were dying, how it seemed to kind of pull society writ large back um, into the pandemic era. And then after that, we had Omicron. You know, so I think everyone's um, waiting and watching to see if there's a, a surge of cases, like you said, in Europe. You know, it seems to me that people aren't entirely sure what's going to happen, even if it feels like the entire Biden administration has COVID um, at at the moment. As as well as Speaker Nancy Pelosi. All of official (laughs) Washington. And and in fact, my fiance and I have been joking. We can't tell if it's just official Washington that all has COVID or if it's just Washington, D.C., kind of writ large, the entire city. It's it's, sometimes it's hard to to make that distinction. But it's a it's a huge, you know. Look, for all the reasons um, you know the, the show has been talking about, you know, the White House has huge problems when it comes to the economy. Democrats haven't been able to get their message out. If you put a resurgent pandemic on top of all of that, right, um, it just compounds the problems and maybe makes it just too, there's just too much baggage there for, for Democrats to, to move forward. And I think you can say like at a minimum, at a minimum, if Democrats want to have 
an unexpected amount of success in, in November, um, you know, the pandemic needs to be in the rearview mirror uh, for, for a lot of Americans and Democrats need to be able to talk about that credibly. You know, I guess we're going to wait and see if that actually happens. Uh, finally, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the select committee uh, on investigating the January 6 uh, at- attacks. Uh, they have been sort of steadily chugging along, interviewing people, uh, subpoenaing them. Um, you know, recently Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, uh, you know, uh, you know, was in the headlines on this. And, uh, you know, the, the, so a lot of people are cooperating, but then there are some of the holdouts. Uh, Peter Navarro, former, you know, senior Trump administration official uh, and um, and Dan Scavino, who was, you know, a big uh, comms person in the Trump White House. Uh, refused to comply uh, with a subpoena to sit and uh, and and discuss, you know, a January six with the committee and its staff. Um, that started the process of holding them in contempt. The committee voted to hold them in contempt, and then the House itself uh, uh, voted to hold them in contempt and forwarded they will forward that contempt resolution to the Justice Department uh, to to see whether it's it's worthy of prosecution. Um, Sarah, I mean, you're you know you've in 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 covering extremism and covering you know the aftermath of the riot and so forth. Uh, we've we've seen a, you know you 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 know that we've seen a few of these contempt resolutions head to the grand jury, like for Steve Bannon. I mean, ultimately, like that, you know, again, it's the same thing. It's the clock uh, that that we're that we're looking at, because this this select committee has got to know that even if Scavino, you know, gets uh, and and Navarro get him, you know, get indicted, their trial probably wouldn't start for a while. And and, you know, if if the House goes Republican in the elections, this this committee is probably not not for long. Is that sort of your understanding of what's going on? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And the the length of time that these trials potentially take is huge. I mean, Steve Bannon isn't supposed to actually go to trial until July. And the, the committee can't wait that long to start hearings and expect to be over, you know, in time to before the committee ends, uh, when if Republicans take over the, uh, the House. Um, we're also not seeing DOJ rush to follow through on these contempt recommendations. Uh, so far, Bannon's the only one they've really followed through on, and uh, committee members are getting less patient. The the contempt vote included lengthy monologues about uh, DOJ needing to step up and follow through on their contempt citations because otherwise. You know, Congress essentially has no teeth. They have no way of of in demanding information from the executive branch. Um, you know, we'll see if they actually follow through on on Mark Meadows. But you know, these two next one will be kind of the big question of you know we're, we're getting getting closer and closer to the end of this process and how long are they willing to wait? You know, the the committee's done about eight hundred depositions already. There's at least another hundred uh, to go. And then you've got weeks and weeks of hearings while they try to make the case to the American public. And and Elena, like some of the things that we've found out, you know, from from the committee, you know, are are, are things like uh, Virginia Thomas, the wife of uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was actively uh, in. Um, pushing the White House and Mark Meadows in particular, the White House chief of staff, uh, 
uh, to uh, to do everything they could to overturn the election. We also know that uh, there's this huge gap uh, in the phone logs. You know that that's also come from you know, information that the uh, committee dug up about the the president's phone records in in the White House. And I mean, is it? Is is that kind of stuff maybe even more valuable? Those sort of revelations than than some of the, um, you know, subpoenas and and prosecutorial things that DOJ might be doing. It's hard to say. I do think, um, I think it depends on on which one worth you know what you're talking about. I think the Jenny Thomas text, just to use that um, as an example aren't at, going to end up being as fruitful as I think some of what the DOJ is doing. But for other things like the seven hour gap in the call logs and trying to get phone records from the telephone companies um, to help explain that, that could be. So I think it really does depend on, um, you know, what type of information we're discussing. But look, I mean, the committee is has been very careful um about how they've been handling this process. And we're starting to see a lot of information come to light, um, but that's only because the committee wants us to start to see that. They've been very careful about keeping it quiet um, and and really not having any leaks from inside the committee for a long time because they've been working on gathering all the information that they can have um, and, and trying to figure out um, you know, piecing together different parts of the puzzle of what happened that day before they move into the next phase, which will be public hearings, which could start as early as next month. And then, of course, their preliminary report that they'll release this summer. Um, and from my conversations with people, um, staffers on the committee, members of the committee, they say that they're intensely focused on that period of time when the former president um what what the former president was doing, what his state of mind was during the period when the rioters were um, flowing into the Capitol. And of course, they've, they've spent a lot of time in the lead up to that in the months before, um, you know, who helped spread what everyone is calling the big lie about election fraud. Um, but really, it's going to be that time frame um, from what the former president was doing and his aides were doing when the mob was being carried out. Um, that they're, they're really looking at. And so all of this intel that they're gathering and starting to, you know, quietly leak to the press um, is, is, as Sarah said, it's showing that they're wrapping up um, a key part of their investigation as they move into the next phase. And Alex, it doesn't seem like the Biden folks really want to talk about this that much. I mean, they obviously would be thrilled to see, you know, some more prosecutions happen, but this doesn't seem to be part of their messaging. No, uh, I mean, it, 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 it isn't um, in the least, frankly, and and again, this is a White House that is doing everything it can it can in the you know run up to the midterm election to to convince people that they're addressing their their top concerns. They're talking about gas prices, they're talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, and that's that's where the the focus is on uh, of this White House. You know, I, I do have a question, like I alluded to earlier, about whether or not that starts to change. The messaging starts to change the closer we get to the midterm elections. But for now, um, this isn't the focus at all out of, out of uh, Jen Psaki or, or President Biden. Well, that's a, this has been a really good conversation. I think we could go on, on, on at length. But actually, what I want to do uh, is that I want to talk about our favorite stories of the week. Uh, uh, you know, anything that is a little off of the Ukraine uh, midterms, gas prices you know, beat per, per se, uh, funny, sad, important, you know, just something that kind of caught your eye. Um, Sarah, let's uh, let's start with you. 
Uh, so my favorite thing from this week is that someone returned stolen Darwin journals to the Cambridge University Library. Uh, these two journals, which include Darwin's original tracing of the Tree of Life from 1837, went missing about 20 years ago. And they were just randomly left in a pink gift bag in the middle of the library this week with a note wishing the librarian happy Easter. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, Elena, your favorite story of the week. Mine's a little less fun. <laughs> Still fun, though. But um, I was just reading last night, actually, about how um, the, the title of it is The Stuff of Movies, How Fox News Rushed to Help Its Journalists After They Came Under Fire and Invasion. And it was really about how... Um, they Jennifer Griffin, a Fox News host, um, helped extract one of the reporters, uh, Benjamin Hall, who was in Ukraine when an explosion went off. And and it really was. I mean, she ran through the Pentagon, spoken with um, John Kirby, the Pentagon press secretary, about how they could help extract him. Um, and I won't go too into detail, but um, it really was like out of a movie, the way that they were able to um, find people on the ground and organizations on the ground in Ukraine to get him the um, Benjamin Hall to, to the border and then have the Pentagon help um, get him out and bring him home to safety. Um, it was just an incredible story. And so I um, wanted to share that with you all. Excellent. How about you, Alex? I'm going to cheat a little bit. This was from last month, um, but it's still a story I couldn't resist. Jesse Marsh is actually the first American man to coach in the English Premier League, uh, which is a big deal. It's the best league in the world. Uh, it's a big step forward for, you know. Wait, what about Ted Lasso? Well, <laughs> well, as you might guess, this is actually related to Ted Lasso because he's complaining during a press conference that maybe Ted Lasso is adding to the stigma that Americans don't know how um, to, to, to coach soccer. They don't know soccer. He was even referencing the fact that we keep calling it soccer when they call it football and that maybe Ted Lasso isn't helping with the stigma. And he kind of goes on and on in this press conference and he ends, he winds up in a place where he's saying, well, you know what? I'm just gonna, we're just going to have to try our best and we're going to have to do what we can and the chips will fall where they may. And he caught himself and he said, well, I guess I sound like Ted Lasso. Really. I was just going to say. <laughs> and, and that's a, that's a story I, I, uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't resist. Oh, that's great. That's great. A lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of British stuff here, uh, folks. <laughs> um, I am, uh, uh, my, my favorite story, uh, it is, uh, you know, it is opening week, uh, opening day. Uh, my, my wife Fawn and I went to a very soggy, uh, opening night, if you will, at Nationals Park to watch the Nationals lose last night. Um, but I, I, I like to, uh, uh, I like baseball, you know, journalism and and writing about baseball. And this one um, story in a uh, a, a local uh, DC cultural magazine uh, called Recommend If You Like was talking about um, the uh, that that huge home run sculpture in Miami uh, called Homer. Uh, the, this is a more than fifty foot tall sculpture that was in the Miami Marlins. A park uh, for ten years from from 2012 to you know it was just just removed last year, um, and uh, 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 you know it was just so Miami. It's a, it's by a writer by, uh, named uh, Marcus uh, Gilmer, and he, uh, he he talked about the history of this sculpture uh, and how much Miami Dade paid for it, and and uh, and and ha- and this and the sculptor itself, and how uh, there was this love hate relationship uh, between fans and executives with you know this gigantic thing that had like 
um, you know, marlins that sort of floated around. It almost looked like an old world European, you know, clock uh, that took up almost a city block. It was in, in, in the outfield. And every time somebody hit a home run, it all, you know, all the girly wigs and so forth went all over the place. And music played and it was just this crazy thing anyway it was like it was removed uh by executives led by Derek Jeter who is no longer with the Miami Marlins uh and 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 taken outside the Miami Marlins park and and then th- now there is talk now that the, now that Jeter is gone and now that the Miami Dade mayor is is no longer in office he's in congress now uh to to bring it back and you know this is just like the kooky baseball kind of stuff that I like uh to to uh, uh to, to read about it's a very fun story uh and uh, and it also detracts from the uh, the rebuild going on with the Nationals <laughs> so uh anyway th- um that's 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 our stories uh, for for this week. Um, I'm Jason Dick, editor at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, who's spending the next month as a resident fellow at the American Academy in Rome. It's going to be a wrap for this edition of Bill Press's Pod and the Reporters Roundtable. I want to thank uh, Sarah Wire from the LA Times, Elena Treen from Axios, and Alex Rorty from McClatchy Newspapers. By the way, about Bill in Rome, he's not just eating cannolis. He is doing that, but he'll also have an interview next Tuesday with Silvia Poggioli, NPR's senior European correspondent. With the war in Ukraine and the increased attention into NATO, the Hungarian and French elections, and the rise of authoritarian regimes in Europe, they'll have a lot to talk about. So tune in. And again, thank you for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Have a great weekend. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.